I uh, have a good friend of mine is here in Bonaire. He's here kind of on a little vacation time, and we've been doing some scuba diving together and having long theological conversations, and uh, it's been really good to have him here. My friend's name is AJ. Those are his initials, Anthony John, but he goes by AJ Rinaldi. I've known AJ for... 30 years? You, really? Wow. Uh, yeah, we were children then. Uh, in many respects. <laughs> we were indeed children then, but uh, AJ was a part of Community Bible Church in Nashville that I was a part of, and we uh, have served together in many ways over the years. He's been here once before, some of you will also remember his wife, Dana. Dana came with a group of women. Uh, this, this was before I was the pastor here. Dana came with a group of women to present a women's conference with uh, Dana and Marcy Preheim and my sister-in-law, Stephanie, and Amy Luke. Uh, so some of you were participants in that. And uh, now you're going to meet the less impressive half of that uh, couple. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so I've known AJ for a long time. AJ now serves as the Minister of Adult Discipleship at Frisco Bible Church in Frisco, Texas. She's been in that church for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dana serves as their musical director. And uh, anyway... I don't know what else to tell you about AJ, except he uh, is willing to be my friend, which is a blessing to me, and I hope to him as well, but to me for sure. So I'm going to actually stop talking now, turn it over. AJ? <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Cool. No, I find it amazing that Doug... Uh, tolerates me being around him, actually. He's so smart, and as you'll learn this morning, I'm, I need a lot of help. Uh, anyway, good morning. It's super cool to be here today. I love it. I love this place. The last time I was here was a real blessing to me. I'm just, just curious. Does anybody remember that? That was five years ago, Christmas time, <laughs> and it was a lot of fun, Christmas and the whole thing. You know, it was great. Anyway, it's a blessing to be here. When I, when I let Doug know that I had some time to take off of work for a little brief sabbatical and I would love to come to Bonaire, there was this silence on the other end of the phone, and he said, well, I guess, I guess that'd be all right. <laughs> you know? but, so, uh, so then, uh, then I said, well, you know, I'd, be love, I'd love to preach for you if you'd like a week off when I come. Then again, more silence. Well, I guess that'd be all right. So anyway, I'm very grateful to Doug because I love being here. It's a blessing. So um, on that note, let's pray, shall we? Lord, uh, just lift up this morning to you. I lift up this message to you. I lift up myself to you uh, as your servant and your vessel. Lord, I just pray that everything that we do we are mindful that it is your kingdom that we serve. It's not our own. And what a blessing it is and a privilege to have been called to your kingdom. Lord, in all we do, word and deed, may we bring you all the glory and all of the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So this morning, we're going to talk about something kind of cool. The resurrection. The resurrection. 
Okay, so resurrection is the centerpiece of Christianity, right? I mean, it's the central thing of Christianity. Throughout the ages, there have been differing views on resurrection. However, for our purposes this morning, we're specifically interested in first century Judaism, because that's where the context of the resurrection of Jesus occurs. And he is the first fruits of the resurrection for all of us. The Jews had specific ideas from the prophets about what resurrection would look like. For example, in Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel has this vision of dry bones, dead bones reanimating with flesh and blood, God tells him this, you will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. And Isaiah prophesied, your dead will live, their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring out the departed spirits. So with these and other passages, the Jews had an established belief in the resurrection of the dead, and it was clearly physical. Okay, not like zombies in the movies and on TV, for those of you who might be fans of The Walking Dead and other zombie shows. <laughs> you have that here, right? But it was a bodily resurrection nonetheless. It's a bodily resurrection we're talking about. So in this chapter titled Christian Origins and the Resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus as a historical problem, how's that for a title? N.T. Wright clarifies this point when he says, if a first century Jew said that someone had been raised from the dead, the one thing they did not mean was that such a person had gone to a state of disembodied bliss, there either to rest forever or to wait until the great day of re-embodiment. Resurrection meant embodiment. Further, it implied that the new age had dawned. Nobody suggested that the new age had dawned except, of course, the Christians. The early Christians were so clear in their conviction, we have no choice but to fully embrace that resurrection is real. Now, I love acronyms and alliterations and mnemonics, so we're going to use one today. In fact, I kind of have a reputation in my church. Whenever I teach, I always have some, something to remember the message by. So this morning, hopefully this will help you remember how important resurrection is to the Christian faith. Resurrection is real. The fact of the resurrection is reliable. Christ was crucified, was indeed dead, and three days later he rose from the tomb, bodily resurrected. He was not a ghost. He did not almost die. He died and arose. The doctrine of the resurrection is essential. At your E, the doctrine of the resurrection is essential. As I mentioned earlier, the core of Christianity is resurrection. The resurrection first of Christ Jesus and then of the believer to eternal life. Now, the result of the resurrection is accessible. What does that mean? 
Those who place their trust in Christ alone are justified before the Lord. With the resurrection, God's plan of redemption is shown to be fulfilled. Finally, the power of the resurrection is life-changing. Although eternal life begins at the moment of salvation, we remain here for a reason, to demonstrate the power of the resurrection through our lives. Okay, so let's start with the fact is reliable. The fact of the resurrection is reliable. Now, there are many apologetic resources attesting to the overwhelming evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Now, most authoritative for the believer should be what? The Word of God. So let's turn to what is often referred to as the resurrection chapter. We read some from there this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 3. Paul writes, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to over five hundred brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep which means they had died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Now, it is important to pay attention to Paul's testimony here. The list of all the people to whom he appeared bears great weight. There would have been many people contemporary to this event. Not only was it not proven to be false, we'll continue on that in a minute, Christianity based upon the fact of the resurrection, spread like wildfire in large part due to the testimonies of those who had interacted with the risen Jesus. Not the least of which was James, who incidentally did not believe in Jesus' deity during his earthly ministry. He questioned it. Now, Let's examine a few common theories that have been put forth throughout the years and how they have been proven untenable or impossible. We're going to look at these four. Joseph of Arimathea had the body moved. The body was moved by Roman or Jewish authorities. Jesus didn't really die. He recovered and left the tomb. Or the women were actually at the wrong tomb. So first of all, Joseph of Arimathea had the body moved. There are three solid reasons that this cannot be true. First, it is extremely unlikely that Joseph would want to do this. Okay, this guy was influential. He took great risk to his political and social standing by honoring Jesus in this way. Why would he then want to move him? Second, if Joseph had legitimately removed the body, why do it in the middle of the night? He wouldn't have. The act itself would have drawn enough attention to provide evidence for the detractors that Jesus had not risen. Third, there's no record whatsoever of a tomb or a shrine becoming the center of veneration or worship on the ground that it contained the body of Jesus. If it was ever seriously stated at the time that Jesus was really buried somewhere else, it most certainly would have become a site of some significance. Remember, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people who had followed Jesus during his lifetime. Okay, let's look at the next one. The body was moved by Roman 
and or Jewish authorities. This one is pretty simple to disprove logically. If the authorities had moved Jesus, there would have been so much evidence, so much activity around the occurrence that there never would have been so great a following of this newfound faith. Think about this for a minute. If the authorities who wanted to squash the spread of Christianity had taken Jesus' body, they simply would have presented the body and put the movement to rest, and that would have been the end of that. Okay, next we have Jesus didn't really die. He recovered and left the tomb. This is ridiculous. Okay, think about it. Even the 19th century theologian, David Strauss, who was quite liberal, he wrote a scathing critique of this theory that makes sense. Strauss wrote this. He said, it is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, which is the grave, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave. Such a resuscitation could only have weakened the impression which he had made upon them in life and in death, but could by no possibility have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm, have elevated their reverence into worship. The Romans were quite adept at execution. They were very good at it. The idea that Jesus somehow survived the crucifixion just cannot be imagined in any reasonable context. All right, so next, next uh, idea that the women were at the wrong tomb. And then, this is the funny part, and then it follows that the subsequent encounters with Jesus, okay, so the women were at the wrong tomb, but they thought they saw Jesus, so they went and tell everybody. We're going to read about that here in just a minute. So, so if, if that's the fact, then the following encounters with Jesus, and this is, I'm not making this up, this isn't my idea, there are people who believe this, they were the result of a mass psychological delusion, so the women convinced everybody else so well that Jesus had risen that they all imagined in their brains that it was true. Now, I really want to stop there because it is so ridiculous. But anyway, let's, let's look at the text and see what, what Scripture has to say. In John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene has the encounter with the angels and the risen Jesus. In verse 15, there's this phrase, thinking he was a gardener. Thinking he was a gardener. I have it underlined there. Okay, so, so if it wasn't Jesus... And if they were indeed at the wrong tomb, again, what would the authorities have to do? Evidently, they weren't as smart as these theorists think they should have been, because all they had to do was produce the gardener, confirm the location of the tomb, and squash the commotion over the risen Jesus. But no such plan happened. No one has produced a shred of evidence to contradict all of the eyewitnesses and the subsequent followers of Jesus. Albert Henry Ross wrote this book called Who Moved the Stone? His name was Frank Morrison, actually. Uh, he, he was an agnostic at best, okay? An agnostic is someone who eh, doesn't really believe. They're sort of like, well, it could be true, it couldn't be true, it doesn't really matter. So he was agnostic. But he was an admirer of the historic Jesus. But he did not believe in the resurrection, let alone the deity of Christ. As a journalist, he made it a passion project in the early 20th century to prove that the resurrection did not happen. Okay, as a journalist, adept at research, 
He made it a project to prove the resurrection did not happen. He did such thorough research that many who read the book that he finally finished thought he was a lawyer. As his arguments in proving the authenticity of the resurrection were so sound. Now, some of you may have heard of Lee Strobel. Uh, he wrote this book. Um, he wrote this book. Uh, uh, all of a sudden, I drew a blank. It probably says it right up there. The Case for Christ. Thank you. There was a movie made about it. Anybody hear of that movie? About his life. So that movie came out a few years ago. Okay, so he said this about Morrison's book. He said, I owe Morrison a great debt of gratitude. Who moved the stone was an important early link in a long chain of evidence that God used to bring me into his kingdom. Morrison's stirring intellectual exploration of the historical record proved to be an excellent starting point for my spiritual investigation. Now, Morrison came to a place where he had no choice but to accept as fact that indeed Jesus had risen. Well, let's read what Morrison has to say about it. So Morrison says this, he said, whoever comes to this problem, this is the problem of the resurrection, was it fact or not, has sooner or later to confront a fact that cannot be explained away or removed by any logical processes whatever. This fact is that a profound conviction came to the little group of people, a change that attests to the fact that Jesus had risen from the grave. The whole party, including the nine men who fled at the arrest and certain independent persons who have not previously come into the story, were convinced that something had occurred that changed their entire outlook. He goes on to say, the phenomenon that here confronts us is one of the biggest dislodgments of events in the world's history. And it can be accounted for only by an initial impact of colossal drive and power. Yet the original material from which we have to derive this dynamic force consists of a habitual doubter like Thomas, a rather weak fisherman like Peter, a gentle dreamer like John, a practical tax gatherer like Matthew, a few seafaring men like Andrew and Nathaniel, the inevitable women, and at most two or three others. Seriously. He says, seriously, does this rather heterogeneous body of simple folk reeling under the shock of the crucifixion, the utter degradation and death of their leader look like the driving force we require? Frankly, it does not. And the more we think of it disintegrating under the crisis, the less can we imagine it rewelding into that molten focus that achieved those results. Yet the clear evidence of history is that it did. Something came into the lives of these very simple and ordinary people that transformed them. Of course, it was the resurrection of Jesus that had transformed them. Think of the entire Roman authority and the Jewish authority up against these group of people. That's his point. And the unambiguous message of the resurrection spread because of these people. All right, let's look at Acts chapter 4. We take a glimpse at this. It says, while they, now this is Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them. Again, the force of the authorities were against these guys because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. We looked at that earlier, what that looked like in first century Judaism. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, 
And the number of men came to about 5,000. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. I like how N.T. Wright, we quoted from him earlier, uh, clarifies why there was confusion and annoyance over the teaching of the resurrection as far as the Jews were concerned. He writes this, he says, from the very beginning, Christian reuse of resurrection language is astonishingly, astonishingly free of vague and generalized speculation. It is crisp and clear. Resurrection means going through death and out the other side into a new mode of existence. This whole position is comprehensible only within the thought world of Judaism, but it is much more precise than anything that non-Christian Judaism had at that stage produced. If, therefore, at any time in this period you'd said to a Jew, the resurrection has occurred, you would have received the puzzled or irritated response that it obviously had not. Since the patriarchs, prophets, and martyrs were not all walking around alive again, and since the restoration spoken of in in Ezekiel 37 clearly had not occurred either, not to mention the great prophecies of Isaiah and the rest, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus was never in question to those original Christians. They had seen the risen Jesus and began to develop the core of our doctrine, the core of our doctrine based upon the resurrection, which brings us to our E. The doctrine of the resurrection is essential. The doctrine of the resurrection is essential. Without the resurrection, there is no foundation for the divine nature of Christ and the eternal result of his substitutionary death, having been accepted and confirmed by the resurrection. Now, Jesus being the first fruits we follow in forgiveness and eternal life, the doctrine of resurrection is essential. With confidence in Jesus' resurrection, there is confidence in our future resurrections. The great author, C.S. Lewis, stated it succinctly when he said, to preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection. So N.T. Wright again says Christianity began as a resurrection movement. It began as a resurrection movement. It was the central driving force informing the whole movement. In particular, we can see woven into the earliest Christian theology that we possess, that of Paul, right? Of course, the belief that the resurrection had in principle occurred and that the followers of Jesus had to reorder their lives, their narratives, their symbols and their praxis, their very thinking. Let's return now back to the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to pick it up with verse 12 now, where Paul continues and says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Verse 18, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. 
But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Without believing the resurrection, there is no justification. And without justification, there's no eternal life, no resurrection for us. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 4, chapter 21, we begin. He says, because he, Abraham, was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And to the church at Ephesus, once again, Paul emphasizes the centrality of the resurrection. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Moving on, chapter or verse 20, he exercised this power in Christ how, Christ, how? By raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. By now, we should understand the importance of, of this doctrine. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. In his powerful speech on the day of Pentecost, Peter appealed to his fellow Jews by going to the scriptures they knew, specifically about resurrection. In Acts 2, we read these words of Peter. He's saying, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. This didn't happen in a vacuum. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay." You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. That's from Psalm 16. Brothers and sisters, Peter goes on, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, he was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. 
God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Verse 32. There's that word again. They were witnesses to the resurrection. This was a big deal for a lot of people. But he goes on and says, Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Remember, this is the day of Pentecost. There were radical changes happening. Therefore, he has poured out what? The Holy Spirit. See, the result of the resurrection, this is our A in your notes, you got an A, is accessible. The result of the resurrection is accessible. I'm going to quote from C.S. Lewis again. He said, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. In John 14, Jesus said, In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. We benefit from the result of the resurrection. Again, of which Jesus is the first fruits. He rose, so therefore we will rise. Romans 8.11, Paul writes again to the church in Rome, sending the same message. He says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. That, in verse 11 there, that word if could also be said, and because... The spirit of him who raised Jesus lives in you. Back to 1 Corinthians 15 in verses 47 to 57, Paul lays out the promise of accessibility. That's our A, it's accessible for us who believe in the risen Lord. The access to our own incorruptible bodies. Paul writes, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit in corruption. Listen. I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. How incorruptible. And we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 58, this is Paul's exclamation point. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, 
be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because the power of the resurrection is life-changing. There's your L. The power of the resurrection is life-changing. In an essay written for the C.S. Lewis Institute in the U.S. titled The Resurrection of Jesus Christ as Christianity's Centerpiece, these two authors, Benjamin Shaw and Gary Habermas, write this. They say the resurrection is more than just a historical event that one accepts on rational or historical grounds, as we have reviewed this morning. It does not stop there. It doesn't stop there. The practical outworkings of this foundational tenet are numerous and cover virtually every aspect of theology as well as the everyday features in the life of the believer. Everyday features in the life of the believer. Doug and I were discussing this week, the gospel permeates everything we are and do as Christ followers. And the gospel is not possible without the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 6, Paul writes, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we consider ourselves dead to sin, then our lives should reflect the change. The power of the resurrection does indeed change lives. We have been given a living hope, a living hope that should define who we are and how we act. Peter writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart love one another, constantly. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. This is the picture that Doug was mentioning earlier about fellowship. We've had some great conversation about this. This is one of those passages that make clear you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart. And Peter makes it clear it's the resurrection of Jesus that's enabled us to do that. See, the resurrection, again, let's going back to our, 
our handy acronym there, real. It's real. The reliable facts, the reliable facts. Jesus was crucified, but was raised from the dead, established what? The essential doctrine. Justification is made sure because of Christ's victory over death. This is not just information either. There are accessible results. Those who trust in Christ alone will have eternal life. And the power of the fact, the doctrine, and the result is what? We just said it. Life-changing. It's life-changing. The facts are reliable. The doctrine is essential. The results are accessible. The power is life-changing. We live in the hope of eternal life and by the power of the Holy Spirit made possible because of the resurrection. Resurrection is real. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this beautiful day that you have given us. Thank you for everyone here, Lord. Thank you for your faithful people loving one another, Lord, worshiping you in word and in deed. And as we go from here this morning, may we truly do that with a focus on you, giving our lives as a living act of worship to you. Praising you for the resurrection and the power that it gives us to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.